welcome to Redeemer Community Church's first theological coffee house of the summer. Uh, we've done this for the last two summers, and this is going to be the format of this evening. And the reason we do these, we're going to do uh, one a month for the next four months. Um, our next one is June 15th, and a counselor named Gordon Bowles is going to be teaching that. It's going to be on marriage and the gospel. Um, he is an excellent counselor. If you are single, it doesn't matter. Married or single, do you want to come um, to hear Gordon talk um, on May, June, sorry, June 15th? Is the music still on? No. Okay. Um, and let me tell you the format for tonight. Tonight's topic is we're going to look at the Ten Commandments in Christ. Um, we're going to look at both of those and, and um, how Christ and the Ten Commandments work together. And I'm going to talk for probably about an hour or so, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Depends what I, I feel like or how sleepy you get. Um, and then we'll take a break and let you guys ask questions. Um, if you want you know, a better answer than I would give on the fly, you're welcome to come up and talk to me in the break and you know, give me a little heads up. Um, I'm also not going to get into the nitty-gritty. If, if you're wondering like, about the Leviticus little pus bumps with white hairs and stuff like that, we're, we're, we're not going there. You know, there'll be a lot of I don't knows. Um, but we are going to look at the Ten Commandments and we are going to look at Christ. And our goal for this, our goal for all the coffee houses, is worship. That's it. It's not confrontation. It's not, you know, see if we can stump one another. It's if we can learn together um, about God's Word so ultimately we can be better worshipers. And so with that, um, let me pray and then we will get started. Our Father in Heaven, we give you thanks for us being able to meet freely in a place like this and to talk so openly about your Word. Now we ask for clarity and wisdom and power as we open up your word. Um, I pray that you would write it on our hearts. That these would not just be written in stone, but they would be written on our hearts. Uh, so Lord, give us insight um, into your heart and character tonight so that we might better worship you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I thought a good place for us to start is to actually read through the Ten Commandments. Um, so I want to read through the, the Ten Commandments are found in two places in your Bible. Um, they're found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, and what you have, the reason they're in those two places, Exodus 20 is right at the start of Israel's history. It's, um, it's when they were just brought out of Egypt and it's like, here's the law. Deuteronomy 5 is when they are about to go in after 40 years of wandering and stuff. They're about to go into the promised land and they're reminding this next generation of the law. And so it, it tells the law again in Deuteronomy 5. But we're going to read from Exodus 20 and uh, then we'll go from there. Can everybody hear me fine? All right, good. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So that's the Ten Commandments right there. Now, before getting into the specifics of the Ten Commandments um, and seeing how Christ dealt with them and how Christ fits in with them, I thought we would uh, take a step back and just ask and answer a few fundamental questions. Um, Maybe first look at also the structure of these Ten Commandments so we we have a better understanding of it. Um, So we're going to start with the most basic question you can when coming to this. Why in the world is the Ten Commandments something worth studying? Why, why are we here on a Wednesday night in the coffee house looking at the Ten Commandments? Um, are, they, are they better or you know, than any of the other laws that are in the Bible? You know, why is it that, um, that we're not in here studying about clean and unclean animals? You know, and that, that's going to be our topic for tonight. Or um, looking over rules about when you can charge interest if you give a loan, or when you can't charge interest if you give a loan. You know, and I'm sure it would have been more exciting. We could have packed people in here for that. But we're looking at the Ten Commandments. What, what makes them so special, though? And I guess we, we give them prominence because the Bible gives them prominence. Um, the, the Bible puts them out for us in a very unique and different way for us to look at. You know, when God delivers the Israelites from from slavery in Egypt. Um, He heads straight to Mount Sinai. The entire mountain is consecrated so much it says, if any of you touch this mountain, you're dead. Okay, so you can't touch it. Just Moses, come on up here. Moses comes up to the top of the mountain. There's there's smoke, there's fire, there's earthquakes. People are saying, you know, they're they're covering their ears, they're running away, people are terrified. And then you have God Himself writing these Ten Commandments, it says with the, with the finger of God, He writes these Ten Commandments on stone tablets. Um, he, he doesn't write them on paper you know, or clay. These things are written in stone. Um, and, and you don't have anything else like that. Um, and then even after Moses smashes them, he's like, alright, well we got to do it over. We need these commandments in stone. And, and, and these commandments were the commandments that were carried around in the Ark of the Covenant. And so they they do have a very unique place within Scripture apart from the rest of the law. Um, And so, although you have within your first five books of your Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we call the Torah, or what we call the law, all of that, uh, Torah is a little different than law. Torah um, has more of instruction or uh, living the right way. That's, That's kind of what it means. This is how you live the right way. The Torah... 
but within that, kind of encapsulating all five of those books and all those words, they are encapsulated in these ten words, or these ten um, commandments. Um, they are called the ten words. That's what, if you've heard the phrase Decalogue, ten words. Um, and you find that a couple of times in the Old Testament, um, in Exodus 34 and in Deuteronomy 10, it says, when God gave us these ten words. And I don't know if it's just saying, you know, they were very succinct, probably very much like, you know, do not steal, do not murder, which, which is just not murder in Hebrew. Um, and then we, we had them fill in, maybe some expl- explanation around some of those to broaden them up a little bit. But they were small enough, like ten words to fit on two tablets. And uh, so let's look at the structure. You know, that's why we, why we study them, because they are important. They are central in the Bible. Um, but let's look at their overall structure. Why, why are there just ten? Um, why, why aren't we talking about the 14 commandments, you know, or the, the two commandments, or the, the hundred commandments um, of God? Um, because certainly there could have probably been a hundred commandments. And, and what you find is, um, I believe that the difficulty in writing any kind of law is if you make it super short, it's going to be so abstract, it's not going to have any hands or feet. You're not really going to know what to do with it. But if you make it too detailed, um, then it's just so exhaustive. Nobody can know it. I mean, really, every little rule, um, every little part of your life is going to be guided by the, the teeniest rule. And so you've you got to strike this balance between the, the abstract, yet it's got enough flesh on it that you can, you can do this. Um, you've got to strike the right balance. For, for instance, you know, today you might have a law that says somewhat abstractly, you are to love uh, public property or government property. Um, or maybe it would probably say you are to respect government property. And I'm like, great. But that's, that's a very abstract law. Um, how, does, how does that law carry it out? And so that's, that might be too abstract. So you might have something underneath it saying you are not to litter on public property, because that's a way you would show respect. Um, and then if you wanted to work out the particulars of this, you could say things like, because people might have questions, when am I allowed to throw a cigarette outside of my car window on public property? And so you might have these rules, it's like, and you're not allowed to throw a cigarette out on, you know, out of your window onto the grass, or you are not allowed to throw away your paper cup on the ground, and you're not allowed to take the little you know, paper from a straw and, and to throw it away. Uh, on the ground, and you could have endless rules if you wanted to, but it, it would be exhaustive. I mean, who could, who could bear that? So you can't have just respect, respect public property, and at the same time, you can't have every little microscopic rule. And you need to somehow strike that right balance. Um, I, I think God is doing the same thing here. I mean, he, he's working with sinful people. Um, he is using words to communicate the law. And so he's striking this right balance where he can't be too abstract, and yet he's not going to give tons and tons of particulars. Um, he, he could have just said with the abstract, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Abstract. There it is. 
Um, you do that, and, and that's all I want you to do. Um, you're going to please me. And if he had just put that forward, he would have been right. Because that is right if you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And if you were to love your neighbor as yourself, you're, you're going to be following God. You're going to please Him. Um, as a matter of fact, several places, Jesus actually summarizes all of the law by quoting those two places, those two verses, which actually aren't one of the Ten Commandments. Um, anybody know where the you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind comes from? Anybody? It's Deuteronomy 6. Right after the commandments are given in Deuteronomy 5, you have almost this summary statement. Here it is. You've just heard all this law. Be careful to do this law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself actually is in Leviticus 19 of all places. I mean, it's just, it's just like way out there in Leviticus land, and you've you got to stumble on it when you're going through your Bible reading plan. But it, it's nestled there in a chapter that goes through a lot of the Ten Commandments. It goes through a, a whole bunch of them, especially ones concerning other people. And it kind of gives this summary statement. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you're going to fulfill all these others. Um, and so those are two true statements, or two abstract statements, um, but they're too general for us really to know how that applies to our lives. Um, and so God fleshes this out a little bit more by giving us ten rules that help explain really those two. Um, but you have to read all ten of the commandments in light of love. All of them have to be seen in light of loving God and loving your neighbor. That's the lens you put on um, to see these. Um, many theologians, I mean, from the earliest centuries, actually broke up the two, the two tablets of the law into, they, they said one of the tablets was about loving God, you know, commandments one through four, and then the other tablet is about loving your neighbor, commandments five through ten. We don't know if it was like that or not. I mean, we really have no idea. Um, but it's a good way of thinking of them. You, you do see those two, those two ideas there. Um, but there still is a difficulty with having only ten laws. Ten very short laws. Um, because there's going to be some circumstance which is going to come up. And you're going to be like, well, how do I applaud apply these ten laws to this. It doesn't really seem to fit in. Um, for instance, <clears throat> we have you shall not murder. Um, you shall not murder. It seems pretty straightforward. Right? You're not to go out and kill anybody. Now what if, though, somebody breaks into your house at night and you hear them coming in your room, are you allowed to shoot them or not? Who would say yes? Anybody? Yes. All right. Um, I, I keep a machete underneath my mattress, just so you know, if any of you are thinking. Um, you would be right. There's, a, there's what we would call um, case studies that are in Exodus about this. We have the same thing today. You know, that's the, the case study is you're allowed, you cannot flick the cigarette out your window. It gives a particular circumstance. And so what you have in Exodus and in Deuteronomy is after these ten laws, you have case studies. And so what you find in Exodus 22, 2, is that yes, you're allowed, if somebody breaks into your house, you're allowed to kill them. 
if it's nighttime. If it's daytime, you're not allowed to kill them. That's murder. Anybody want to explain why? I mean, it doesn't really go into any more particulars. I, I, I can only think, this is pure, pure Joel, uh, that, so grain of salt. Um, is that night? You don't know. You don't know the intentions of somebody breaking it. So, because you could even kill the person by accident. It could be somebody you knew. It might have even been a friend. But if they're in your house at night, you're excused from it because you, you did not know. But then the day, apparently, you can see your attacker and you can um, assess the situation better. You can flee. Maybe you can see it coming. I'm not really sure. But it makes the distinction between the two. Nighttime, okay. Daytime, wrong. Um, let's do another scenario. Um, it's the Sabbath day. You're driving in your car, um, and you see somebody uh, who has a flat tire on the side of the road. And it's an old woman, and she's trying to figure out a jack, trying to do this, and you're, you're like, what do I do here? What do I do? Okay. Well, I need to be, I need to be guided by love. You know, I, I've got that abstract. I need, I need to love God. I need to love my neighbor. And so, uh, so I'm going to... I'm going to help them out. Who here would help out if it was the Sabbath? Are you going to help out an old lady who who's, has a flat tire? All right, people are like, they have, y'all are like, I'm guarding myself right here. Um, well, I would say, you know, good call. Yeah. Because you're, you're loving your neighbor there. Uh, but somebody might say, well, wait a second. Yes, you're loving your neighbor as yourself. That's good. But what about loving God? He says to observe the Sabbath and to not work on the Sabbath and keep it holy. So out of love of God, I'm not going to do this. And so you, you seem to have, it's like, well, okay. You can make an argument for both. So, so what do you do? Well, the Bible has case studies. And so you're going to go and you're going to find, you know, like in Deuteronomy 22, where it's going to say, hey, if a person's, you know, cart falls in a ditch, you know, help them out. Like, ah, okay, makes sense. And so you have all, all of these around the Ten Commandments. You have your general principles. You have you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And you have that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. It's fleshed out more in these ten very precise commandments that encapsulate all of the law. But even with those two, there's going to be like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And so that's why afterwards you have a few chapters in Exodus going through case studies, and you have several chapters in Deuteronomy going through case studies um, in those, for those ambiguous situations. Um, and that's what you're going to find in the law. Um, now, kind of understanding the structure of the law and, and you know, how this is set up, Another more basic question is just to ask, well, why do we try to keep this law? Do these commandments save us? Is that what it is? Are they going to save us? And the answer to that is no. Absolutely no. For one, you can't keep them, okay? You're not going to be able to keep them, so don't try to depend on them to save you. But two, if you look at Exodus, you realize salvation was already given. And that is the heading for all Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 20, verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's already redeemed them. He's already brought them out of slavery at this point. He does not give them this law beforehand and say, hey, I'm just going to kind of watch, see if you keep these up, you do a good enough job, I'll think about you know, getting rid of Pharaoh for you. I'll, I'll think about saving you. He does it. He saves them first. He redeems them first. And then he gives them his law. He's like, now that I have saved you, here's how you live. And, and, and these laws reflect my heart. You want to know me now? This is what I am like. This is my heart written out in words for you. So, so now you, you know how you can worship me. You know how you can praise me. Praise me. You know how you can be like me as, as you follow these things. They won't save you. I've already done that. Um, and so it's very important to realize that at the start. Otherwise, this law is going to be this crushing weight on you. Um, now let's move to Jesus. Um, now that we've looked at the structure, um, the structure of the law, let's talk about Jesus and these commandments. Because I believe that these commandments, their ultimate purpose is to point us to Jesus Christ. Um, as the living Word of God, just who Jesus is, as the living Word of God, as God in flesh, in human form, Jesus can be seen as the embodiment of these words. His life, who He is, He is the embodiment of these ten words. Um, if, if these Ten Commandments reveal the heart of God, that's what they were for. It's like, here is my heart. Here comes Jesus, who is God. And so, He is obviously going to have the heart of God. And so when we look at Jesus' heart, we're going to have a much greater understanding of the Ten Commandments. When we see how He lived, when we see the things that He taught, um, we can't understand, really, the Ten Commandments unless we look at the life of Jesus, the Lord God who wrote them. And what we have is when Jesus came into this world, 1,400 years after these commandments were written, um, He set a new standard of what it meant to keep them. Uh, actually, I would say He set a new standard of what it meant to be human. B.B. Uh, Warfield, he's a famous theologian, uh, he gives this great illustration that I'm going to rip off him. Um, he says that Jesus was the new plumb line. Y'all know what a plumb line is? It's if you need to make sure like a masonry wall is straight or something, you just hang a string with a, with a weight at the end of it and it's perfectly straight. And what you had before Jesus came on the scene, you had people thinking they were upholding the law, thinking they were obeying the law, thinking they were upright. And then Jesus comes, He's the plumb line, and everybody realized they were like this. Everybody, they realize, wait a second, they're, they're completely slanted. I'm not upright at all. I thought I was keeping the Ten Commandments until Jesus came in here. He's the embodiment of the Ten Commandments. Jesus, He judged people or people felt condemned when He just simply was in the room because He was the plumb line and everybody was sideways. He didn't even have to say a word. Just through His actions and His presence, people realized they were not walking uprightly. Um, and so, 
Jesus' actions teach us how we're going to live these commandments. He's the one we have to look to. He's, he's the plumb line for us to understand these things. Um, when Jesus went up on the mountain um, and He met Elijah and He met Moses and He was transfigured, um, very similar story to when Moses went up the mountain and was transfigured, received the law. They're almost identical stories here. Jesus did not come down the mountain with new stone tablets. It's like, okay, talking to my father, we've, we've, we've got Ten Commandments, second edition. All right, you, you've all got to buy into this. He, he, didn't, he didn't do that. What you did have up there is the father saying, not I'm giving you a new, new law, but this is my beloved son. Listen to him now. Listen to him. He's going to tell you my heart. You don't, have to, you don't have to have the words here anymore because now you're going to hear it from my son Jesus. Listen to him. As he gives it, shows you my heart, as he shows you this new law. Um, so now let's, uh, let's walk through some of these commandments. Wow. All right, we'll walk through. Let's look at the first commandment. And what I'll probably do is talk about what, what each one of them means and then what Jesus teaches about them. And then we'll take a break and have some Q&A. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, with each of these negative commands, you can also make it a positive, meaning I am the only God you should worship. <laughs> All right, not only is it negative, you shall have no other gods before me, but I am the only God that you should worship. Now, for this group of people, it would have been um, very important coming out of uh, Egypt in which there's a god everywhere. You know, there's river gods, there's sun gods, pharaohs of God, there's all these gods everywhere. And so right at the start, God pulls them aside and says, just so you know, all those things there, not gods. Not before me. It's like, I, I alone am God. He's, God's saying he's to be first in all of, his, all of our lives. Um, John Calvin says this, uh, to have no other gods before God means that we are not to transfer to another what belongs to Him. And I think that's really good. We are not to transfer to another what belongs to Him. <clears throat> and so all praise and all honor belong to God. All thankfulness belongs to God. All of our affection belongs to God. All of our trust belongs to God. And if we transfer that to any other thing, we have broken this first commandment. And this is important for us to understand because as humans, you were created not only to worship something, I would say you were actually created worshiping. You, you cannot help but worship. We're made worshiping beings. It's not like you can shut it off. What God is saying here is now that you are made worshiping, you're always going to give your affection someplace. You're always going to trust in something. You're always going to think something. It needs to be me. Me and nothing else. Now, how did Jesus fulfill this commandment? Um, well, for starters, if you want to look at Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5, a famous story, Jesus tempted in the wilderness. Sorry, Matthew 4. And we have Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights and Satan tempts him and says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus says those famous words, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. This is actually an attack of this first commandment. Because he's saying, you want me to put my trust, you want me to put my trust in someone other than my Father. That the reason I can stay alive if I just eat. He's like, no. No, not at all. He's saying, we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That means we live because God says live. A lot of people misunderstand what's going on there. But that's what Jesus is saying. No, I understand. The reason I'm alive, the reason I've been able to fast for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water is because God said live. There's no other reason for it. And so I'm going to trust God and I'm not going to trust in turning this rock into food. So you see Jesus honoring that first commandment. You, you see this, we'll just look at the last one. You see this most obviously in the last one when you know, Satan's like, hey, I'll, I'll give you the world if you just fall down and worship me. Jesus is like, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only will you serve. Um, later Jesus would say things like, you know, He lives to do the will of His Father. He says, my food and my drink is to do the Father's will. I, I'm all about the first commandment. Um, I think probably the best place in which you want to see this first commandment um, realized in the life of Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross and it seems like everybody or everybody has left Him. You know, that he's got no friends, he's got no possessions, he's in horrible pain. Um, you know, he, he's basically he in hell on the cross. What he cries out is, my God, my God. He, he says, I still believe in the first commandment. I'm not going to call out to anybody else. But even though I feel absolutely forsaken, my God, you are my God. And so even in that pit of despair there, Jesus keeps this. Now let's look at the second commandment. Um, we're not to have any images. Or I would say stated positively is that we are to have spiritual worship. Spiritual worship, not, not through some image. And so this shows us right off the bat here that God is spiritual in nature. Um, we don't we don't worship through things or try to make the representation of Him. And John chapter 4, Jesus says, you're to worship Me in spirit and in truth. And he's, he's talking some about this commandment right here. Um, Jesus regularly went away to pray. Pray is, is when you are worshiping just in spirit. And Christ would do that regularly. He, he also went and He gathered with people and, uh, and worship collectively with the people of God. I, I love in Luke when it describes him going to the, to the synagogue one time. It says he went to the synagogue as was his habit. I love that little line. As was his habit. 
Jesus was in the habit of going and meeting with the people to worship God, to spiritually worship. He had an entire life of worship. Um, it's just, this, is, this one's free. has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. But <laughs> I see in my life and I see in the lives of others, we, we like to put up a number of excuses into why we would not be part of a church family or a church home full of hypocrites, don't like the teaching, I don't really get anything out of the teaching, all this stuff. Do you think Jesus could have had those same arguments? I mean, do you just, do you think Jesus might have been able to say, walk into a room and be like, I'm in a room full of sinners, you know? Or, uh, gosh, I'm really the teacher, just, you know, he really didn't teach me. I counted 20 heresies, you know? Jesus could say that, but he was in the regular habit of going and worshiping with the people of God. What a model for us that Jesus felt that was worthwhile. Um, this commandment also um, is given because any representation of God would distort Him. It wouldn't fully communicate who God is. Um, let's say, uh, and this might have been the issue with the golden calf in, in Exodus 32, but we want to we show that God is strong. So we're going to make a golden bull. You know, that shows that He's strong. The problem with that is you're comparing God's power to the power of a bull. Like, really? Really? Like, there, there's nothing that you can make, nothing that adequately expresses who He is. So don't try. Worship Him in spirit. Because anything you make is going to be a false representation. And in this, you, you, you kind of have this hint you know, you got to hear this whisper of God saying, hey, wait 1,400 years and I'm going to give you the exact representation, okay? Don't put up a fake one. I'm going to give you the exact imprint of my nature when I'm going to come in flesh. Um, and so this commandment here, Jesus is, uh, He embodies this later. This commandment points to Christ in which Colossians 1.15 says, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Let's look at the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Stated positively, you are to honor the name of the Lord. Um, to understand this, you have to know, you know, what is a name? A name is a person's character. It's a person's reputation. And this is what we are to honor. And this means so much more than, all right, you're not supposed to say, you know, a swear word with Jesus' name. You know, or a swear word with God's name. You're, that's, it's not less than that. But it, but it certainly is a lot more than that. Um... This means that we're to be honoring God's name at all times. And so, one of the ways I think we dishonor that is when, um, when we bear the name of God as His children. We're Christians. We are Christ-ins. We, we bear the name of Christ. And so, if we do not fully represent Him well, we dishonor Him. When we don't faithfully communicate His heart, 
We dishonor him just like if any of my children who are named Brooks go out there and they do horrible, horrible things. It shames me. So one of the ways that we don't keep this commandment is just simply through sin. Every time we sin, we're dishonoring the name of God because we bear his name. The people of Israel had the name of God and they misbehaved and so they poorly reflected on his name. Um, we also break this command, I believe, when we pray for things and we say, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you just prayed for some of the most unbiblical things you could ever pray for. But we, we say, but, but I prayed it in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, it's like, I don't want to be associated with that at all. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. And this is actually a capital offense. This was so severe, and ironically, that's one of the accusations that went against Jesus and had him killed, was that he was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer. Now, Jesus teaches us about this commandment in so many places. We're just going to look at a couple. One in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's like the very first thing he says. My Father, our Father, may Your name be adored. May Your name be treasured. May it be, may be it revered. That is my heart's desire above all else. It's at the very start of the prayer He taught for His disciples. You find in John 17, when Jesus prays again, and He's doing what we call the high priestly prayer, um, He prays this. He, he says, Father, I have manifested Your name to the people You gave Me. Then He prays, Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You've given Me. And so, God or Jesus, He cares so much about the name of His Father that He is revealing it correctly to these people. It's His heart desire to, to, to communicate faithfully the name of God. And we don't, if you want to do an interesting study, we don't have really the time to do it. But if you want to compare John 17, the verse 11, about when he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, compare that to like Ezekiel 19, 20, and 21. Because I think Jesus is contrasting there or pulling that out. Um, there you have um, the Israelites are accused by God of profaning his name. He said, You have profaned my name, you haven't kept this commandment. And then he says, but for the sake of my name, I'm not going to allow it to continue. I'm going to save you. I, and it uses the language, I will keep you. I will keep you for my name's sake. And here you have Jesus praying here. He's like, Father, keep them for, for, for your name. For not because you know, they've done anything, but you know, just, just because of your name and the, the saving power of your name preserve them. We also have Jesus is the one who reveals to us the triune name of God. When He says, baptize in the, in the name, the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Alright, let's look at the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Um, this commandment is the only one that was really specified before Mount Sinai. 
um, they were already asked, or not asked, <laughs> told to obey this commandment. You know, like when they were gathering manna and stuff, it was like, oh, but you don't do it on the Sabbath. You don't work on the Sabbath. We already saw the Sabbath principle laid out in Genesis. Um, and this commandment, I think it teaches us trust in God. It's one of the reasons it's there. Of course it's there because God knows we need rest. We need rest. But it also teaches us trust because most people think they have to work constantly or I'm not going to make it. And when you have to put aside one day of work, you have to trust God to take care of you. And so it reminds you, okay, God's the one who's ultimately in control of my life, not me. And so I need to put aside some of these things. I mean, some, I, I know some of you feel like if you, if you close your computer and, and not check email, uh, you know, puppies and kittens are going to explode all around the world or, or something. It's just, it's like, it's, you, you can't imagine the horrors that would happen if you, if you did that. And God's like, you know what? You've got to do it. Trust. Take, take time off. Um, Jesus is actually accused of breaking this commandment when his disciples are picking up grains, and he says, actually, just so you know, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who created this thing, just so you know. I'm Lord over it. Um, and I think this is what Jesus means if you want to turn to Luke chapter 4. We're actually going to look at some of this this Sunday as well. Uh, Luke 4, Jesus' first sermon. Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon, uh, found in verse 18, when He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me, because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is... The, uh, the year of Jubilee. That's what it is. It's, uh, you find it in Leviticus 25. And what, what God has done is He's set up every seventh day you rest. But not only that, every seventh year, there's to be a special rest in which you can't farm for an entire year. You just eat off the produce there. You're, you're to scale back. And then every seventh, seventh year, so after 49 years, there's this ultimate Sabbath. The year of Jubilee. That's when you guys, you just shut down. You, all right, you're, you're not working. If you have some servants, you release them. Um, you're, you're to get rid of a lot of your property. I mean, it's just, it's total chaos and pandemonium, but it's, it's this release to the captives. It's the year of Jubilee. And so when Jesus starts His ministry, He's saying, hey, I am the ultimate Sabbath. I'm just like that year of Jubilee is now being fulfilled in me. Um, and so Hebrews 4 talks about this same theme about we find our ultimate rest in Jesus. All right, I want to go through these next six, hopefully somewhat quickly. Uh, fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. 
Um, this is really about honoring all God-given authorities in your life. Um, not just really your father and your mother. You can pick this up a lot in the Apostle Paul and Peter's thinking when they talk about submitting to your authorities, honoring the emperor, basically the people that are appointed by God over us, we honor. We, we, we respect. Um, in Jesus' life, you see this throughout in which He submitted both not only to His Heavenly Father, but also to all the earthly authorities. He submitted to them even when He was being treated unjustly. Um, you see Him honoring His mother even at the cross in which one of His last words is about His mother and wanting to take care of her. And so you can see in the life of Jesus how He fulfilled this. Sixth commandment. Do not murder. The positive of this would be promote life. Meaning, do everything you can to promote the life and the welfare and the joy of others. Um, I like to think of this verse kind of like gardening, in which you know you're, you kind of get your hands dirty, um, and you, you really you kind of water and you get the right fertilizer and you do all of this to to bring out the potential, to really bring out the life in something. And that's what we're to do. We're to seek that in others. We're to invest in others and we're to work ourselves in their lives and we're to, to water and we're to fertilize and we're to try to make something beautiful and alive. And Jesus, He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Later, He would say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, of course, Jesus keeps this because everything He did was life-giving. Everything. Hmm. Let's go ahead and go to 7 because I want you all to have a break and be able to ask questions. If you all want more of 6, just ask me in the Q&A. Um, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Or the positive, have complete faithfulness and affection for your bride. Complete faithfulness and affection for your bride. Um, Jesus expounded on this in the Sermon of the Mount. He says, I tell you, if you have even a lustful thought, you've committed adultery. Okay, So this is not just what happens physically, this is what happens in your heart. Um, it's interesting to think, well, how did Jesus fulfill this? Because Jesus... Despite what the Da Vinci Code you know, tells you, uh, Jesus never took a bride. And he remained single of his life. Um, however, through, throughout the Bible, marriage is always seen as this picture of God's relationship with us. It says throughout, you see that, and adultery is when you go after idols. And so what we see in Jesus' life throughout is that uh, He was the only faithful man to God. And, and He set the standard of what actually marriage should look like. And you find that in Ephesians 5 when Paul is explaining marriage. He's like, hey, you want to know what marriage is? Look at Jesus. It's like, Jesus, God is the one who made marriage in order to represent His love for us. 
And there's a, there's a lot of parallels uh, if you study the life of Adam and the life of Jesus concerning marriage. Um, we can't go into all of them, but just as Adam had to be put to sleep and he woke up to find his bride, you have Jesus having to be put to sleep, having to die, and when he wakes up, he finds his bride. Just as you know, it had to be pierced in the side, Adam had to be pierced in the side in order to get the rib to form his bride, Jesus had to be pierced. And, and you can make a lot of these comparisons and see the, the first man, and then you can see Adam the, or Christ, the second man, and how they both got their brides. And how Jesus lays down his life and loves his bride with total faithfulness, his bride being the church. Eighth commandment, do not steal. The positive of this is be generous. Um, and you see this in Christ's life. He freely gave of everything. He would give of his time. He would give of his possessions. If he didn't have anything, he'd make food and give it out. I mean, Jesus is giving constantly. You don't ever see Jesus going around just taking. He doesn't do it. He's always giving. Ninth commandment, do not lie or bear false witness. So the positive of that is always be truthful. Um, this, is, this carries with it not only the, the idea of your to not tell a lie, but you are also to, you're also to want to honor the reputation of those around you. That's why it says like not to falsely accuse. You want to honor the reputation of those around you. You're, you're to not ever even let a shadow, shadow of dishonor come from your lips about another person. You, you don't do that. Um, Jesus, of course, fulfilled this perfectly. Um, you know, he would say a number of things, like he would, he would tell. Um, people said, if you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, you're going to know the truth. You will know truth. Not falsehood. Not everything you've been clinging to, but truth, and that's going to set you free. Um, one of my favorite verses that speaks a whole lot about Christ in this area is from 1 Peter 2.22, in which Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit in His mouth. You think about it. Peter traveled with Jesus everywhere. They were around the campfire together. They would you know, sleep in homes together. They're on the road together all the time. And to think after all of that constant communication, Peter says, never, never did I hear one deceitful thing from his mouth. It's unbelievable. Tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Um, or stated positively, live content lives. Live in a continuous state of thanksgiving. We all hate this commandment, let's be honest, all right? Let's just, you know, we, we all hate it. Um, because it goes straight for the heart. Unlike the others that start with the action, this was like, forget action. You know, you could just be sitting here, hands folded, and you could be coveting. Straight for the heart. Um, no commandment, I think, was seen more readily in the life of Jesus than this. Not coveting. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a wife. 
He didn't have any of those possessions. He could have had them all, but he didn't. Um, he didn't even have a tomb. You know, it was in a borrowed person's tomb. He could have been, you know, like the pharaohs around him, the, the kings around him. He could have had a palace where he could have asked his disciples to start working on that giant pyramid, you know, some tomb. He could have done all that, but no, not at all. Um, he could have used his miracles to make himself rich. Um, he could have used uh, his miracles to, uh, you know, to make his reputation go all around the world and just done all the dramatic for that. But... Jesus only used His power to serve others. It's remarkable. He could have used it all for Him. But He was the exact opposite of coveting. He always used the power that He had to help others. And So if you want to understand what this commandment means, you have to look at Jesus. To not covet is to use the powers that you have to improve the life of others, not to take the things you like from the life of others. You're constantly working in your words and in your deeds to improve what the other people already have. All right, summary, we're going to take a break. Um, in all these commandments, we see Christ keep them perfectly. Um, he exegetes them, if you will, he explains them through the way he lives and through the words he says about them. He's the new plumb line. He comes in, and you're like, wow. I didn't understand the commandments at all. I didn't know what not coveting meant until I saw you, Jesus. I had, I had no idea. I didn't know what not murdering meant until I saw you saying, hey, if your enemy even hits you, don't get angry, just turn your other cheek. I, I didn't even know that. He's the new plumb line. And this is extremely important to us for two reasons. One, it shows us how we should live. Jesus is an example to us. First Peter tells us that. Christ is an example. He's not only an example. He's much more than an example, but He's certainly not anything less than an example. And so we have to look at Jesus and how He fulfilled these Ten Commandments so they can be part of our life. And also, it's important for us because as Christians, we like to talk a lot about the imputed righteousness of God on us. Um, how Jesus gives us His righteousness. And usually when we think of that, we go straight to the cross. And we kind of think of this passive obedience of Jesus on the cross. But actually, His righteousness came from His entire life. His entire life lived keeping these commandments. All the places we fail, fell, Jesus did not. He kept them. And so He lived the life that we should have lived. And He died the death that we should have died. It reminds me of Romans 5.19. It says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so when we see the Ten Commandments, we see the life that we should have lived, but Jesus lived in our place. Um, with that, let's take a break.